Greetings and salutations, future fossils. Ouch, it's been a little while. I apologize for vanishing from the weekly time stream, but I was out at the Oregon Eclipse Festival and then Burning Man getting initiated into my magicianship. And, uh, yeah. More on that later. Anyway, I am delighted to be back in the fold, and I'm going to make it up to you with an additional episode this week. Got some really cool talks recorded out at these festivals, and I will be sharing those with you here shortly. I want to say that this this episode in particular is really core to the nature of this show. It really speaks to the identity of what I'm trying to accomplish here. My buddy Andrew O'Keefe, who is an archivist for Singularity University, used to work for Android Jones and is in general a very keen documentarian, filmmaker, editor. He was putting together the official documentary for the MAPS conference back in April Andrew and I see things very much eye to eye in terms of the importance of preserving information and culture and and why I'm doing this podcast in the first place as a trove of intergenerational knowledge and wisdom transferred down through the ages. So this is a fabulous conversation and I'm really glad that you get to hear someone else's point of view on why we should save everything, even if we can't possibly find the time to listen or read or catch up on all of it. You never know what's important. After all, you know, the archaeologists are often most interested in the trash pile. So even if this conversation ends up in the trash pile, that means it's got to be important to somebody someday, possibly. Or it might be. Who knows? Anyway... The thing is finding value where you least expect it. The thing is realizing that everything is a resource. When I was out at Oregon Eclipse and Burning Man, I was telling people, as I have for years, that imagination is our greatest natural resource, that it requires only our ability to notice something as a resource, that, as Terrence McKenna said, that what we're suffering now is a poverty of the imagination. I'm not entirely in agreement with that anymore. It's been a transformative month, as I'm sure all of you can agree. I hope you're safe. I hope that you're well-fed, warm, dry. But if you are those things, it's probably because not only did someone have the imagination to recognize the resources in our environment that allowed us to better our lives, but also we were able to pay attention long enough to manifest these things and in an age where the rate of ideation the cycle of fabrication research and design and manufacture has narrowed down to the blinking of an eye and the things you think become real faster than they ever have it's important that we pay attention all of us to what we're thinking to the unvoiced unconscious desires of our body to the repressed voices of our psyche This is an age when prayers are being answered and stray thoughts are stray bullets. And if we really want a better world for ourselves and our descendants, then it's time to level up, folks. My friends, I want each and every one of you to be the powerful magicians that you're capable of being. And that means paying more attention. 
do whatever it requires to get into that sweet vein of deepening lucidity, acceptance, compassion, and embrace for all the chaos and confusion that surrounds us in this goddamn year of fire rooster nonsense. Please enjoy your life and enjoy this episode, which, by the way, was brought to you by my dear community of patrons at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks to Catherine and Howard for joining that roster of wonderful people who are helping me maintain this show and all of the other things that I release through that. Today, as soon as I put this show out, I'm speaking with a literary agent about my book, How to Live in the Future, and how we can put this mashup of evolutionary theory and creativity coaching and mystical poetry to use in service of a more empowered and amazing future. And if you believe in that, if you think that this boundary-hopping, playful juggling of ideas and synthesis is vital to the discourse that's emerging for us all, then please hop on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and consider throwing me two bucks a month or five or what have you. Or if you can't, that's still a great place. You can go to download tons of music, all the podcast episodes here, and lots of writing. I'm going to be posting new chapters from that book that I wrote out on the road here very shortly, so keep your eyes tuned to that. Anyway, I love you, thank you, and enjoy the show. Um, I think I'm going to set up a backdrop anyway. Fuck it. I got I got this far, so... If you got five minutes, just let me set something up behind me. Okay. I'm not recording <laughs> I'm, video. I am. I'm recording screen capture. I'm recording webcam. I'm recording my mic, and I'm recording computer audio. The first thing we're going to talk about is your problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, it is a problem. So hang on. Let me uh, – I got to take my headphones off so I can do this. Just give me okay. a sec. Sure. Okay. So you work for Singularity University – as their archivist, which means that you are in this bizarre position of gathering and managing all of these presentations, panels, talks, whatever, about people thinking about the future. So in a, in a way, our line of work is very similar, only you're getting paid for it and I'm not. And... <laughs> I mean, beyond that, I don't know. Like, I know that you have this life history of collecting stuff, but I'm curious to know how all of this makes sense for you within the context of the greater reason of like, if Singularity University isn't planning on sharing this stuff anytime soon, then why do you find this work so appealing? Why do you find this in this sort of growing obsession, it seems like the more that we can record, the more that we do record. And then we're, we've discovered that there's this trove of undiscovered or untapped value 
in all of this data that we've collected without knowing what to do with it. So now there's like kind of a cultural shift towards collecting, even if we don't know why we're doing it, assuming that in some future point, it's going to become useful to us. So you think about this stuff every day for a living. So where do you go with all of this? Like why, why is, tell me why I do this show, Andrew. (laughs) The good news is I actually have an easy answer, an elevator pitch soundbite for you, which is basically, in my opinion, from my personal experience, if we don't both preserve and share the things that are important to us, they may be lost um, through all of history. Now, history is relative. um, Preservation is relative. But in my own personal experience, through the kind of counterculture ideology I got exposed to at a young age, to even my experience working in the festival culture, to now just even being part of like a larger organization, I see a, a need. And the need is to basically not only preserve things, but also organize it in a way so that it could be discovered later on and searchable. And I guess what started and, and the, the thing that turned me onto it is actually a jam band show. Uh, I went to see Sound Tribe Sector 9 for the first time in 2006 and their soundboard fried. They couldn't – they made us wait outside pretty much until like 11 p.m. And they let us in eventually and we saw the show. And after the fact, it turned out they had no soundboard recording. They had no – quote unquote evidence that the show ever existed. I found a taper uh, recordist who recorded a show. Actually, there were two tapers. So to this day, uh, you know, to this day, I still have a recording of my first Soundtribe show. And it was really like emotional and special and awesome. But that kind of set off something in my head where it's like, holy shit, this is one of the earlier peak experiences that I had. And if somebody didn't go out of their way to record it, make it searchable and put it online, I would have never been able to relive it again. So that was kind of this uh, relevance to me. But anyway, back to the quick soundbite. It's like, if we don't preserve what's important to us, then we run the risk of not sharing it ever again. Nobody might ever even know that it happened. And it was both jam band recordings. Obviously, The Dead has a big history with it. But even people like Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick, two of my favorite authors, being able to listen to tape recordings and interviews and just really casual bits of history that people have saved over time. If it wasn't for those people saving and preserving them, we wouldn't necessarily have the depth of that knowledge. I mean, the exegesis is a great example of Philip K. Dick's uh, personal handwritten notes, letters, and so on and so forth that a group of people, including Eric Davis, was able to come together and edit into this kind of masterpiece. And I mean, if you go back a little bit further in history and you look at famous artists, granted, it's a painted canvas, but a lot of the artists we cherish today were relatively unknown in their lifetimes. Uh, Van Gogh is the best example that I can give you. And if it wasn't for people to preserve and distribute that stuff, we might not have it. I mean, Kafka is another great example. Supposedly Kafka uh, didn't even publish anything when he was alive. He worked a shit job and on his will said he didn't want any of his writings to be published after his death. And he died. Oh, and too somebody... bad for you. <laughs> Pretty much. But then somebody reads it and it's like, holy shit, this is phenomenal. It has to go out live. And I mean, my favorite anecdote really, which is way beyond me, is Harvard University. And the story goes that Harvard University – um, was founded by John Harvard. In part, this guy had a collection of 600 books, you know, way back in the day. 
and he donated his 600 books to this Harvard institution that he created. And that 600 book collection way back when morphed into what we now have as Harvard University. I mean, it's what this kind of data set that we might not have value to put on it today may end up being completely priceless. And even the short term future, we it's really hard to know. And uh, with the advent of Moore's law and exponential technology, we suddenly have the capacity for artificial intelligence to sort through and use pattern recognition to give us more context to this stuff. So anyway, that's my long winded answer. That's that's how I kind of see it fitting together. That's why I see it as important. And uh, even working with uh, artists like Andrew Jones, you know, finding all of his old hard drives and centralizing all of his media and pulling out all his uh, PSD files and finding all those old pieces of artwork, you know, one day handed Andrew Jones a hard drive that had 7000 art pieces on it that it took a lot of time and a lot of energy and focus to get to that point. But now he's got a whole new canvas and palette of all the art he's ever done that he saved to hard drives in one place which changes how he makes art and the art that he makes. Indeed it does. Gosh, you know, I I think about all this stuff, and I know that you and I are both fans of the Long Now Foundation and yep. that book. Have you read Stuart Brand's book on the clock of the Long Now? I'm at the beginning of it, but I didn't get as far into it as I'd like. Yeah, because he addresses a lot of these issues about not just the value of preserving recording and preserving cultural media but also how there's interoperability issues that as we start to think about this stuff we're getting into the issues of you know how do you get information off of a nintendo cartridge if you don't have a nintendo all of these current systems that are built on legacy software and nobody's nobody's alive to remember how to actually use the legacy software anymore. And so he was kind of making this case that, especially given that it's a little different since he wrote the book that, you know, we've, we've got, you know, server-based cloud storage and we did not in 1998 when the book was published, but you know, this issue of our, digital media, you know, the information on a flash drive or on a CD being much less stable in some respects than a book. Like it's not searchable and it's not so easily copied a book, but a book we can put even in kind of a moldy room and it'll sit there for a hundred years. So let's just assume that we've made a solid case for spending a tremendous amount of time archiving everything but then we get into this other issue which is that we asymptotically approach a vertical with how much time we spend just maintaining the archives and like i know that you appreciate this because while i was having fun at the maps conference running around like a silly monkey you were editing video you were like locked up in the room editing editing the video from that conference it's like there's this issue of we we don't have enough time in our lives to even like tend to all of the stuff that we're recording. So like, what do you see as, I mean, is that just a nonsense fear or? Well, there's, there's a lot of ways to say it. There's a lot of points that I want to touch on. Um, what part of what you described, I've heard Vint Cerf call it the digital dark age where all this digital media and data disappears because we have no means to access it. Hang on, I'm going to find this quote. 
I also read an article recently. It was phenomenal. And it was about the storage issues in Hollywood and the storage costs associated with preserving feature films. I want to get the number for you because it's sure. it's insane. Well, um, you know, as as a point of reference to that, there's a weird sort of retro future sideline in Hutchinson, Kansas, where they have both the Cosmosphere, which is a a space history museum that's not attached officially to NASA, but has a bunch of awesome artifacts and relics of our space exploration and and a planetarium, etc. But then there's also the salt mines under the city of Hutchinson have been used for decades to store things like the original Disney celluloids. And the the salt mines were also used to store a, a bunch of natural gas containers. And at some point in the 1990s, the whole underground facility caught on fire. There was like a a natural gas fire that it took weeks for them to, they just had to wait for it to go out. And we lost all this, all of these, the masters for these old animated movies and all this other stuff. And it's just like, I don't know this, I guess, you know, we may come around to this as a, as a secondary issue. Cause I think it's worth discussing with respect to the uploading of culture and of humans question, but like, in a way, we also kind of fool ourselves into thinking that recording, saving something, storing it somewhere means that it's going to be there again when we're when we come back. You know, I think it's a really nuanced argument. And I, I it's a tragedy what was lost, not just in the instance you said, but throughout history, there's been so many instances the library of alexandria is probably oh, the best too soon bro too soon <laughs> the best uh uh one you know google books's project the there is a great article that came out recently about google the google books project being killed was similar to the library of alexandria burning down because of the amount of data that they and money and energy they put towards preserving all this stuff that just will never be released for copyright issues but anyway back to the quote that i wanted to get you when it comes to Hollywood, for instance, it costs about $20,000 a year to digitally store one feature film. And all told, the digital components of a big budget feature can total 350 terabytes. So storing a single episode, storing a single episode of a high end hour long TV program could cost 12,000 per year. So we're talking huge dollar amounts just to preserve current data. And on spinning disk drives, never mind old films. Old films were on film reels or nitrate, which is explosive, uh, which people, uh, you know, film archives were lost because the original films back in the way back in the day were actually explosive. One of my favorite stories about a film being found was Joan of Arc. Apparently Joan of Arc, um, the silent film was lost to history for decades and it was in a convent or something in a closet. Somebody found one of the original cuts of the film. The pristine print and not to this day that's why we still have that film but anyway going back to your in a convent that's kind of ironic right because <laughs> that's before she was pulled back into the fold and given sainthood and all that mm-hmm. exactly um but back to your question or concern really i think on the bigger picture in the broadest sense there's absolutely no guarantee that anything we store in any sense will last uh in in, in the future 
nuclear holocaust comments, uh, an asteroid destroying all life on Earth. I mean, those are some of the existential risks we face in any kind of long-term storage. But the example that you gave, just as far as operating systems not working anymore, that's a really practical thing too, where there comes a point where it is so costly to, to access that information again. I mean, Bruce gave me this example, Bruce Damer, and he said that he was involved in an old, I believe, Apple court case where there was this operating system written and the only copy of it that existed was on paper tape. And he had he was one of the only people in the world that had the paper tape copy. And he had to, somebody was able to, I believe, scan the paper tape and <laughs> create code and compile it. And they were able to recreate this operating system to use in a court case because Bruce had the stack of paper saved and preserved in a way that it could be scanned and, and, and OCR'd. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Basically, the the thing that gives me hope, the two things that give me hope are – well, actually, there's three things that give me hope. Uh, one, it's the resilience of humans. It's the passion that people have to put an effort into the things they care about. The other thing is kind of the future of technology and the possibility of decentralization. When I say technology, I mean particularly the evolution of storage methods, but also how multiple better storage methods with this kind of decentralized method, where that goes. And the third and most exciting is space travel and the ability for humans and commercial spaceflight to be an option. And the first two things that I mentioned, really passionate people with access to much better technology as far as storage like DNA or quartz crystal five-dimensional five etched glass or quartz discs <laughs> wow. um, being set out in a space with these kind of like decentralized copies, right? So back to how do you preserve something, right? But preserve the method with which to read it. I believe the disc that we sent out the, the – um, Voyager disc that we sent out into deep space in the 60s there's a record a gold record that was about human culture we put it on this probe to send in deep space and we also sent instructions on how to build the record player um even uh Stuart Brand in the clock of the long now they have with part of the long now foundation they've got on you know the Rosetta project and the Rosetta disc the means to build how to view the the data you know the the Instructions on how to build the clock. I believe they have instructions on how to build a basic microscope or optical device to view it. Anyway, I, as you can tell, it's something that I'm very passionate about and I have a lot of different trains of thought on it. But I'm a lot more hopeful that this digital dark age that people like Vint Cerf speak about is not going to happen. In part due to people like Stuart Brand and all the effort that they're putting into preserving things. Uh, and there's kind of a tangent that I want to get on briefly, and I use the word decentralized, and I'm very passionate about de decentralization, but the online file sharing community, in my opinion, is also one of the most strongest pillars of culture that is existing outside of culture right now, in that we have these online communities, be it music, movies, books, um, very specific things like software, audio engineering, plugins, and then these even further niche split off areas. And every user to some degree has this kind of offline archive. You know, even if civilization crashed tomorrow, everybody who's ever been on Oink or what.cd uh, or any of these other, well, even Pirate Bay, they're essentially amateur archivists because they now have offline archives. Granted, it's stored on a spinning disk and it's questionable relative to if we can pull the data off those spinning disks. 
But I digress. Anyway, I, I, I'm hopeful that the future of uh, data storage will, like that hard drive I showed you, make what we do today seem insane, just seem really well, are prehistoric. We, are we kind of living in a digital dark age? I mean, isn't that the kind of the point that like we're at that sweet spot, right, where we realize that we're we're getting really close to coding the world in sensors and being able to generate in some sense or another a a rough three-dimensional replay of your everyday new york city street let's just say i mean there's all these civil rights privacy issues involved with this about you know taking people's image reproducing the image of a person reproducing a person's data whether that is you know where where does it belong you know where where do the boundaries of the commons actually lie in all of these things that we haven't even considered until we're suddenly creating them and and then monetizing them but i think it's safe to assume that just as a, a matter of like entropy just as a matter of the momentum of these technologies and human culture's response to them that we're going to get to a point within the next 50 years where we're recording pretty much everything that we possibly can. And we've had a cultural shift of some kind where we value as you and I value the recording as sort of intrinsically useful because we don't know what its value is because it has that piece of CCTV footage might have the face of the killer or because if you look back on all this stuff, you can, you can spot a trend before it really starts to accelerate, you know, and we become more and more concerned with forecasting, it would seem. Uh, and so we would, you know, we would be looking more and more to our recordings as a way of improving our forecasting so here we are, and we're in this future where everything is recorded, and we're looking back at 2017, and we're wondering, what the hell was going on back then? Like, it seems to us like we're in some sort of info apocalypse, like it's just too much information. But I really get the sense that compared to people who have, you know, super intelligent artificial assistant mindware that's helping them navigate this stuff that's just pulling up answers to questions as we're forming those questions in our brain and you look at something and you can basically search its entire history just by looking at it like you can you know like psychics they hold your teddy bear and they can tell you you know where where you were with that teddy bear five years ago or whatever like that phenomenon that sort of paranormal thing is being like all seemingly all paranormal phenomena is being sort of reproduced in the technological space so our world would look like a desert to that world it would look like like we're we're the dark age and i think that you know that there's i agree yeah so we're, so yeah thoughts on that <laughs> I mean, well, like, I, okay, the, so we, we agree. Good. I think that there's, for the sake of this conversation and, and, and what you just described, 
I would break humanity off in the in the like four epochs, right? The first epoch is basically before any means of storing or preserving knowledge, you know, which of course mostly is lost. The second epoch is kind of the beginning of um, stored and shared knowledge. And even at its peak, we still have tragedies like the burning of the Library of Alexandria. The third epoch, which is I think where we are now, is kind of we're in this transition from analog to digital culture. And a lot of our analog culture is being lost. All these physical objects are deteriorating over time. You know, we're we're going to lose a lot in this transition if amateur archivists and professional archivists don't try. And then of course the fourth epoch is what you're talking about, which is this high fidelity, high resolution, everything is recorded all the time. Anybody can dial into anyone else's virtual reality brain, shared consciousness space, anything like that. And they look back at the the first three epochs and say, damn, you know, even in the third epoch right before us, we still lost a lot. So, you know, I think as we look at how history is preserved or how history is studied, which of course I think you have a much more rich background than I do, a lot of it is inferred through discovery, right? And and in this fourth epoch, we would be looking back and now at the third epoch and saying, how much do we have to infer versus how much data can we work off of? And even if it's sparse, the data sets that we have that we're recording today, I think are still going to, are, are probably going to be immensely valuable in the future. And if artificial intelligence is exploding at the rate at which all the experts claim it is, uh, even in the near future, it'll be a lot easier to, to sort, manage, store, uh, and automate the process of preserving a lot of this stuff. I mean, I, I think that we really are on the threshold of this new means of human culture, consciousness, and experience. And what comes with us, in part, is largely going to be what we take with us. Um, and the rest we'll have to infer based off of what's available, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, so there's this book. Have you read Charles Strauss's novel, Glass House? Mm -mm, I'm oh, familiar with it, though. Okay, so... 600 years in the future, you know, we're past the so-called singularity and the whole book takes place inside an archaeological reconstruction of the early 21st century because all they can do is what we're talking about here, like piece together what seems to them to be just the tatters of this civilization and they gamify the whole thing because they're trying to understand why why people acted the way that they did. And so they insert all of these social incentives in the game where you get points for putting on clothes, you get points for going to work, you get points for coupling up monogamously and having kids. Like all of these things that we would expect these totally liberated transhuman personalities to completely, to find just like utterly unfathomable. You know, like, why would you put your foot, foot in those tiny Chinese shoes? You know, and it's like, well, it's because of the the rigorous roles and rules of that social organism that you're participating in. But uh, a rational, enlightenment, liberal, modern actor, it's like, girl, you got to stand up for yourself. It's like, no, it ain't that easy. And so I don't know, I, like that, that whole book is a, is a fascinating exercise in just how perverse and narrowly constrained our world 
in all of its self-congratulation might appear to our descendants, you know, and I, I think about that a lot, you know, that's, it's like, even just a couple of years ago, like the way that you can search by an image that you take with your phone now, and it's so close to just being, again, just being able to look at a thing and know about it. Whereas like a couple of years ago, like my kids are never going to understand ever what it was like to sit around a conversation and argue about something like that where you like nobody could look up the information but i do think that my kids will probably understand even better than i do how you can all be sitting around the same table and looking at the same facts and disagreeing like because i there's doug rushkoff talks about it in present shock there's this thing that happens when there's there's too much information and so even the experts can't agree with each other and i and i again i I think that that's sort of one of these these sort of complexities of archival so i'm curious about that about you know what you think like we can we can say all we want about you know you being able to use ai to to assist us in like the search and storage and organization of that but it there's going to be like profound ways in which that's like insufficient for us and that we're still getting into these issues of how can we train this AI to look for the thing that we don't know to look for? How do we know that we're sifting through this information adequately? And it kind of pushes this, this issue of the blind spots and the filter bubbles down a layer. It doesn't actually even really address them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to attempt to address a few of the areas that you just brought up, um, actually. <laughs> address get, whichever ones you like. So, I don't know where also, to even begin. Also, feel free to interrupt me if I'm Yeah, wrong. no, I, I need to. <laughs> All right, so I'm thinking here. I can see it on your face. Give me a few bullet points to what you just said, because right. I'm like, I'm getting lost in my own thoughts about All this right. at the moment. So, so one, we got... The fact that if trends continue, that we would expect that our modern life is actually really painfully limited in certain ways. Okay. And and so like what, you know, there's a sort of invitation or, or inquiry into the state of mind from which this knowledge, like the way that we currently organize our knowledge is just like woefully antiquated but then there's this other issue which is like or maybe not because we may end up just pushing the problems that we have today into even deeper and more intractable intractable territory if we're relying on artificial intelligences to help us manage information overload but then they're overloaded and we don't know where to point them and like, does, isn't that just the same problem that we have now getting into a library or a record store and forgetting what you came to look for, you know? Yeah. So I have a few things to say about that. And this is this is thank you for that. That's really helpful. This is basically first and foremost, I think it's a question of incentives, you know, and the reference of the the book that you used in uh, or the book that you read and even how we store and access data. I mean, so much of human culture is built around incentives. What do we incentivize? 
What do we not incentivize? What are our priorities? What are not our priorities? And at least for the past few hundred years, uh, capitalism and um, market forces have primarily been the incentives that we use to define what we're doing and the value uh, of what we're doing. So as far as, you know, from an archival historical standpoint, how do you how do you put value on preserving history? Uh, and unfortunately, in a lot of cases, unless it's an incentivized, you know, say the Hollywood industry where there's huge revenue and in a short term sense associated with it, a lot of things are lost. I mean, as somebody who was really into collecting records, the amount of vinyl albums that never made it to CD is staggering. And there's, of course, a huge culture of people that tape those vinyls, you know, whatever. But as far as the implication of AI, again, it's an issue of incentive. What are the incentives that we would kind of unleash algorithms toward finding stuff with? I mean, it's, it's, it's a really abstract and and strange question. And ultimately I think it, it speaks to a larger issue, which is what exactly are our priorities? What are we incentivizing and not incentivizing? And I think me and you, this podcast, uh, the kind of work that you do, all the different fields you work in and the, the stuff that I'm doing is that we are, we are prioritizing something that largely our society does not prioritize. Um, and it, it's, it's, hopefully the future generations who will find the priority for it. I mean, I am, I'm a strong believer in as time goes on and this digital shift happens in all parts of our society, that history and culture and art will increasingly become the most important, you know, industries and value generators more so than this kind of extractive form of value generation that we almost religiously adhere to today. And, the challenge in in the short term really is how do you how do you make a living like how do you still operate within market forces how do you build ai that is a cultural critic that is intent is to do pattern recognition in a manner through which it understands these pivotal moments in history looking back and 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 can find connections as to run simulations as to how things could happen how do you build that ai and pay for it in research and development when the primary function of the AI that you're building is to generate revenue from advertising. You know, they're mm-hmm. fundamentally two completely different things. And it speaks to a larger shift in value and prioritization. But ultimately, I also think that with technology, we we really are headed towards this unimaginable world. We both can see the transition of no cell phones to cell phones to early computers to laptops to smartphones. um, And every other exponential technology on the horizon speaks to unfathomable changes. So I'm just I'm very hopeful that even in the context of strange prioritization and not so ideal incentives from the ashes will rise new incentives will rise new needs ai and deep learning i believe has already and and some some particular algorithms by some companies have been able to create their own language that humans can't uh even discern i mean there's advances that are happening because of other advances that are converging with other advances like we're we're seeing this crazy interplay where the control of where this stuff is headed is increasingly out of any one individual or organization's hands. Um, and the 
to be pessimistic, on the other hand, we have these central systems of control that have in so many ways controlled humanity, population, civilization, resources over time. So we have these centralized forces now, be it these major multi-billion dollar international corporations, and they're using technology in a way to centralize data, to centralize access to these algorithms, to build private blockchains, to kind of mitigate how the blockchain or cryptocurrency could disrupt centralized banking. And the way that I like to articulate it is it's like a window. I feel like right now we live in this window where in a lot of ways, technology is this kind of opportunity where no matter what central system of control wants to do with it, there's still what passionate, resourceful people can make into it regardless. But I don't think that window is forever. And I think that window is closing more and more. And if we don't find a way to kind of decentralize what all of humanity has developed up to this point, we're probably going to lose it. And that window is forever going to be closed. Because if we have these private blockchains, these trillion dollar behemoth artificial intelligence, very strictly controlled organizations, and then there's no more economy, our value system changes, we're backing ourselves into a corner as far as everybody else in humanity. And if you're not in this kind of increasingly shrinking group, forgive my words, you're fucked. So I don't know. I I touched on some of what you said there, but I, I, I do think that technology, the window that well, first and foremost, technology is evolving to the point to give us our best dreams or our worst fears. And the window for us to impact that technology uh, is shrinking. And how we prioritize what's important to us, how we preserve our culture, how we share the stories that we're experiencing from the most authentic level, I think that has the most impact on the future of our civilization, all civilization, all humanity. If we let market forces run, if we just let trends of meaningless shit that like surface level culture that's not even real culture, that's like um, iterative feedback loop culture that we're, that we're living in. If we let that kind of dictate things, then as everything gets increasingly out of control or asymmetrical, like what the hell else do we have to fall back on? You know, it's like if we come to a point where these artificial intelligence algorithms are analyzing the vast archives of data that we have available to us, hopefully there, there, there's something in there that can help direct the future of how it iteratively improves in a positive way for humanity, not looking back at all this treasure trove of data and saying, like, you know, these, this economic system of value is wholly irrelevant. And as a result, so are the creatures that created it. <laughs> so and they don't have anything to show for it besides it, you know? Okay, so it seems like, you know, if we look back on things, you're kind of in, you seem like you're in the middle of two articulations. One being that something like the printing press comes from a point, you know, the William Gibson quote, the future is already here. It's just distributed unevenly that we get it emerging from these locations uh, you know, like Silicon Valley, you know, it's like, it's all sort of clustered in one place and then it breaks open and it democratizes. But then it's, it's also true that the opposite force exists in society where you get something like the radio and the radio is distributed before it's really regulated. 
And it seems like there's these two vectors that influence how long a technology remains available as a force of disruption. Like how quickly did it distribute ahead of either the legislative regulation of it or ahead of any major economic actors consolidating it as capital, you know, cause like that's, that's the real threat here with that, that whole issue you bring it up around the blockchain, which is something we haven't even discussed on this podcast before, but I think is really timely and essential in terms of creating a, a, a comprehensive address of the moment that these episodes were recorded because this shit is going crazy right now and everybody's hopping on it seemingly um but as a way of in many cases it would seem that the this sort of initial value structure the original value structure for the blockchain is getting lost in this boom of speculation and day trading and the attempts on the parts of nations and large banks to maintain their economic authority. And so it really, it seems like we're at a point now where we have, like you said, this narrow window where either we wield this for what it's really good for, which is the distribution of economic agency in society. It's like taking taking the power away from the people that were standing in the middle and intermediating every tran- financial transaction. Then that requires of us a certain amount of psychological maturity or like spiritual development even that... I'm not terribly convinced that we're like demonstrating as a species right now because everywhere I look it's every you know people are are not like striding confidently onto this new platform and using it as the means by which they are able to uplift their community and keep all of their resources in circulation it really seems like it's just like the gold rush really didn't work out in favor of the 49ers. You know, it worked out mm-hmm. in favor of Wells Fargo. And so I have a really good uh I have a really good analogy for this and it speaks back to the lineage of all of the technology, a lot of the a lot of what brought us here today. And that's the beginning of the internet. I mean, the internet, you know, the greatest demo of all time was in the late 60s, um where the mouse was introduced and internet connection was introduced to projection technology. They had a visual person from the Grateful Dead crew basically running the visuals, showing the internet in 1969. Uh, but it took a couple decades to really catch on. And then in the early 90s, when like the kind of public internet as we know it came online, the two critical pieces of literature that come to mind are John Perry Barlow's Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace and Douglas Rushkoff's book, Siberia. Uh, which is kind of like a gonzo whirlwind tour through the early internet and the subcultures associated with it. Mm. 
And both of those pieces of literature articulate this optimistic vision of how this technology will change everything. And it's going to help bring humanity together. It's going to solve all our problems. It's going to uh, almost kind of realize Buckminster Fuller's vision of, of every, everybody or nobody. Now, this isn't my idea. I'm quoting Douglas Rushkoff here. But when I interviewed him for a Singularity Hub article, I specifically asked him about the you know, you wrote this book called Siberia in the early 90s talking about this revolution. And now you wrote Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. And it's kind of like <laughs> dismantling this dystopian behemoth that grew in the same space of this optimistic vision you had. And Rushkoff's answer was that, you know, it's kind of it was an oversight. In a lot of ways, there was this kind of mentality of this is ours. This is ours. We're keeping government out. And that attitude of not letting like government in and kind of this is our culture hippies weren't the only people that thought that you know idealistic folks weren't the only people who who believed in it and as a result business came in and corporations came in and advertising and marketing the financialization of everything came in and all of a sudden this optimistic counterculture vision of man this is ours and government can't have it it's like well the absence of government that was kind of self-imposed on these idealistic hippies who were pushing this vision paved the way for business interests to take over and of course that's it was a fascinating insight that rushkoff shared and i think we're at a similar space now where there's more variables in that analogy than just government and, and business um there's the biggest issue that I think humanity is facing is all these regional pockets that have very strict and strong belief systems. And in a lot of ways, yes, the internet has kind of overtaken things. You were talking about cryptocurrencies and blockchain, but I don't think that there's any one technology that we can talk about at this point. I think that there's this overlapping and convergence of all these technologies that are going to make it increasingly harder for these pockets to operate and make decisions around them. You know, Ben Gertzel published an article last week that is basically called like how to save the world. And here are these technologies and tools we could use to save the world. And at the same time, he has this optimistic framing for it. His fear is that, you know, we're at a point where all of these tools can be used for if not more bad than they can good. And just because some people have good intentions doesn't mean another group with the same tools with different intentions are going to use them to completely fucking destroy everything and everybody. And uh, this leads into a bigger issue that one of the most important issues, in my opinion, that I have a really hard time grasping and and getting to the bottom of, but really social inequality in every form that we have it today. And I think social inequality is completely inseparable from the evolution of technology and the evolution of human society in all forms, in all pockets, because it's this distribution of capital and resources that creates an asymmetrical access to tools that, you know, we could have a few industrial countries 10 years from now that are completely living in virtual reality with access to nanotechnology and and these kind of cashless sharing economy oriented societies but what about everybody else and frankly you know from uh Gertzel's perspective in his article it's like it doesn't matter what the best of everybody's doing because people that don't have that they're going to be pissed and they're going to use the same tools to show everybody how pissed they are and the best yeah, that's a very good point 
the best modern day example that we have with that is what's happening with the United States presidency and the Trump administration and the alt-right and just, you know, the people who are identifying with the alt-right and rightly so calling it the new counterculture, you know, they have a reason to be pissed and they're leveraging technology in a way that other groups haven't. And they've been able to dominate the conversation online and people can disagree uh, with their ideology and so on and so forth. But you know, never underestimate a group of angry people that have access to resources. And and if we're not bringing everybody up as we're developing all these technologies and tools, we're shooting ourselves in the foot by empowering the people that we're dis- – we're simultaneously empowering the people that we're disempowering by giving them the, the keys to the castle, by saying this is ours, this is yours, this is everybody's, and, and we're not seeing the world in the same way that all these other groups are. Where do you sit in that? Because honestly, I feel like I'm the little people. You know, and I know that you're kind of, I don't know how to put this nicely. You're like living in the master's house right now, but you are nonetheless still a millennial precariat, you know, like you're a a salaried, which is rad, but nonetheless, like still way low on the totem pole compared to the people who's a lot, you know, many of the people who's presentations you're recording and editing so like i don't know i mean is it at the same time you and i are both uh american white men and so like there's no denying our privilege in that respect so educated like well educated well educated yeah i mean here we are talking about all this crazy shit so you know i in a way it it gets really confusing for me about how the revolution always emerges from the middle class, but the middle class hasn't really gone away so much as it has just like fractured into a bunch of overlapping demographic minorities. I will say I, I slightly differ, I guess, in in what you're saying in that, you know, first and foremost, I am, blessed to have the job and opportunity that I have. And there's no, you know, I'm definitely not, there's no other, no, no, I know. I'm, I just, I have to, I have to give thanks where it's due and, uh, recognize where I'm at, you know, and at the same time I live in California. So whatever my income may be is relative to where I live and the cost of living and so on and so forth. At the same time, it's also, you know, working in Silicon Valley, somebody in entertainment is definitely like different entertainment media production is different than teachers that live in San Francisco. And that sucks. Like, which leads me to this really strong uh, feeling and belief that I have is that especially people like us who don't who are privileged by nature of where we're born, color of our skin, uh, the education that we have access to. It's our responsibility to, in one way or another, fight for people that don't have that, to help level the playing field in some sense or another. And I've, in every work opportunity and, and, and almost every project that I work on, that's like at the core of why I do what I want. I do. I want to help level the playing field to make to help other people have access to what I was born into having access to, which I recognize is a privilege. So uh, that said, when we talk about me and you, and you made the comment of maybe the middle class is not disappearing. I think the middle class is, is 
is disappearing and it's disappearing fast and any kind of sense of longevity or permanence of the middle class as we know it will soon be gone. I mean, we're at the beginning of automation in a way that we hmm. can't even fathom where, where it's going to go. And my job can be automated. So many aspects of, of what I do, we just don't have the technology there yet. And so many other white collar jobs are going to be, um, automated as well. So I, I do think we are on the threshold of this. And, uh, one of my favorite quotes, uh, I'll lead, I'll lead with this quote is, uh, Terrence McKenna said, you know, people talk about the apocalypse, like it's going to happen, but they don't realize the apocalypse has already occurred. They're just living in affluent pockets of society and bubbles where the apocalypse hasn't hit them yet. And me and you in particular, I think we kind of live in this mental bubble about, our worldview, we're really optimistic, we're creative, we see the good in people, we try to make things happen. No matter what life has thrown at the two of us, we've generally remained optimistic and pushed forward and tried to at least externally give off this optimistic vibe in some sense or another. What I think is happening with the alt-right and the Trump administration is people who aren't as lucky, is real people that have real concerns, that have had real bullshit happened to them and they're pissed and they have reason to be pissed and they don't have they see this torrent of all these other people that feel the same way as them they may not completely agree with every idea that the leader says but goddamn this community speaks for me you know these people are fighting for what matters to me and and that's what seems to be the solution to them and and there's nothing wrong with people who stand up for what they believe in i mean it, got, it gets a little funny when you bring in this whole element of propaganda, social engineering, brainwashing, mind control. Yeah, what uh, the hell are we talking about when we talk about informed consent? You know, that's – you're getting into these – I mean, can we can we go there? Because I feel like – Yeah, please. Noam actually... Chomsky was one of my first uh, like real intellectuals that I was introduced to reading in high school and it changed my life. Because you veered into an, a trap I laid out for you. Uh, awesome. On, not on purpose, but I totally wanted to bring this up and you brought it up talking about the Trump administration and Cambridge Analytica and the web and the weaponization of our own data records against us by manipulating our opinion in a public election. So like there's this issue of, you know, the famous statement that if, Cambridge Analytica has uh, uh, your 300 Facebook likes. They know you better than you or your spouse or your parents know you. And this, you know, this whole thing, because you're right to sort of call into question the agency of individual voters when, as William Irwin Thompson pointed out in The American Replacement of Nature, the electoral process emerged at a time when there was such a thing as informed citizenry and everybody was reading the same newspaper. And now we're at that moment, you know, where Martin Luther has nailed his reformation letter, his cyber cyber manifesto uh, to the door of the church. And people forget that in the wake of that liberating moment in the history of Christianity, that all of these apocalyptic death cults sprung up all over Europe. And there's actually a really great episode of the Hardcore History Podcast about this, about how uh, Munster 
Germany was taken over by this like death cult for years and like walled up against the Vatican. And so we're, it's, it seems like we're at this point now where something very similar is going on with respect to the democratization of publishing and what, you know, what Rushkoff in present shot called narrative collapse in our society that has made us vulnerable to behavioral controls that are exploiting our sort of what is still to most people, this invisible environment of our data exhaust. So like on the one hand, you've got this totally noble goal that you and I have discussed that I think actually deserves more than a mention here, which is, you know, even if I can't get to all my bookmarks, because you're, you're like a pocket insano super pocket user, uh, the pocket, top 1% of their users pocket app. Yeah. You're probably top 0.01, but like they, they should give you a badge. Like they should give you business cards, but you know, this thing about, well, even if I can't get to it, then at some point my mind clone a la Martin Rothblatt's notions in virtual immortality, this notion that they'll, they'll be able to sort of make a mold of you in the computer without actually destructively reading your brain, that they'll be able to sort of train a piece of AI to think the way that you think. And then you can just assign it to read all the shit that you never read and, and give you the cliffs notes. Right. And like, how great Mm -hmm. will that be? But that's again, that's like, wait a minute. Like who's, is this AI running on a blockchain based mesh network on every phone in my city or is it being run on like so-and-so's corporate server farms and then and then again like who has access to this information because it's you know it's it's one thing to create the library of alexandria and it's another thing to like let the torch wielding mob in there or you know it's just like there's these issues of the way that this information is is not just kept but managed and then deployed to manipulate us that I think are really uh, crucial here. Like it's, it's again, it's like if you're the guy with the security camera and whoops, you're, you accidentally incriminated somebody in a victimless crime, but your camera feed has been subpoenaed by local law enforcement and now that person's got a video of them smoking pot or whatever, and their life is ruined. Again, it, there's this powerful mismatch between what we're capable of recording and how we're capable of sifting insights out of those records and where we are actually in terms of our ability to use these powers for the liberation of human potential rather than just the consolidation of power and the abuse of power. <clears throat> well, the, my short answer, quite frankly, is I think it's the first of all, that was really well said and articulated. Thank you. Uh, but uh, I think it goes back to the issue I was speaking of before, which is the problem of central control. And, and if we can find some more decentralized North Star to uh, help guide us, I think that's really helpful. But still, that's not even enough. I mean, the thing one of the most exciting areas that I'm following now is 
cooperativism or the idea of the platform cooperative. And it, it's kind of the inverse of the platform monopoly, uh, platform monopoly being Uber, where smart person was able to say, look at all these unused cars. What if we middlemen the sharing of access to these cars and siphon off the profit for ourselves? That's a platform monopoly. A platform cooperative would be the there may be a kind of middleman entity, but it's user owned. You know, the people who own the cars are the ones making the decisions, not the shareholders. Not idea of taking the cooperative, worker cooperative, and overlaying it in a digital sense. I think that is increasingly important and, and, and going to play a, a huge role in our future if we have a future. And, and I, because, again, central control has its own incentives. So the scary part of the future of surveillance is I honestly think it's unavoidable. No matter how optimistic I try to be, I don't, I don't ever think we'll get to a point of privacy like we had in the 90s. I just don't think we'll get there. And and in my opinion, if that is true, it's not a question of if we live in a hyper surveillance oriented world. It's a question of the function of that surveillance world. Who owns that data? Who has access to that data? You witnessed this whole thing that I got into on the future fossils group with a follower because I made a post about data and, and as Facebook users, as Google users, you know, these companies know more about us than we do because they're leveraging this analysis of our behavior to sell to advertisers. And if only I could go into Google and get these actionable insights on how I could make myself better. Same with Facebook. Like I want to know how many times I use Facebook. I want to know what I look at, what I click on, who I interact with, who I almost interact with, but don't all these things. But we don't have access to that. So in the future, I think it's more a question of like, how do we decentralize and leverage access and control over all this data that's being generated about us? Uh, and how do we flip the surveillance on the people surveilling us in a way that we can use it to empower ourselves? And I don't quite have a, an, an answer uh, as to what that looks like, what the function of that would be. But I think it's a noble noble goal to navigate towards because yeah I, I the optimistic side of that and kind of getting into the more spiritual ph philosophical um space is that what if this hyper surveillance access to these digital profiles of ourselves digitization of our brains uh networked consciousness if that becomes a possibility even the idea of privacy may become obsolete because if we can dial into and share each other's consciousness in real time and there's no sense of control of your own thoughts, which is terrifying, it would probably change what we contextualize as like privacy and ours. Um, and before before I hand the mic back to you, I just I, I want to say that this speaks to a larger trend that I think is happening in some sense. I think we're experiencing a complete digitization of culture and society and the market and objects and everything like we're digitizing every aspect of humanity. And, you know, people like Kurzweil are very adamant that our brains and consciousness is next. And it's not just our individual brains and consciousness, but networked consciousness. And what does surveillance look like in a future com almost completely digital world with networked hyperconscious superminds? Well, I just finished writing the third installment of 
my essay on the evolution of surveillance, which I started back in 2013 when I picked up the Google Glass. And I wrote parts one and two back then. And it's, I was like struggling to complete the statement until just very recently because what I'm, I think the missing piece for me was how if you regard surveillance or in general valences like covalence surveillance these other more uh horizontal lateral peer-based modes of oversight or that's not even the right word side sight give them the side eye being all suspicious like neighborhood watch you know the the democratization of police action basically right the issue with that is that new senses emerge as a response to a threat and then new senses create a new arena within which we can send each other true or false signals. You know, so like with the eye, we evolve, we evolve camouflage and bluffing, you know, looking bigger than you are or hiding mm -hmm. or displaying what they call like aposomatic or like threat coloration, like a frog that turns upside down. It's got an orange belly to say, don't eat me. I'm poisonous. That there is, this relationship again between like creation and destruction, death and birth in that the internet as a, as a sort of evolutionary adaptation to the threat of nuclear war is, you know, and, and you and I both know that that's very well documented history that when we look at the first post nuclear conflict, like the, the big one, the Korean war, the Korean War, where, you know, we're really sitting there wondering whether we're going to use the nuke on Korea, like whether that's even appropriate. And yet we're not calling it war. We're calling it a police action. And so I don't really know, like, it seems it seems like what's happening if we're to take the like 16th, 17th century monopolies on the printing press that were afforded to like, like the queen's favorite publisher, that kind of thing. And we're to scale this into the issue of surveillance, then it does get really messy really fast because it would seem like what's being required of us is something approaching this sort of ideological state of anarchy where everyone is truly responsible for having internalized their own systems of governance, systems of faith, systems of finance that, you know, as we sort of develop the, I want to say like nuclear capacity, but let's be real, you know, in another hundred years, you can probably, you know, your kid's easy bake oven will probably cook up a bomb, you know? So bioengineered viruses of mass right. destruction that yeah, anybody yeah. can make with a DIY genetic engineering kit. Right. And then, and then you, and then you get into this issue of like, well, you have to be watching over your neighbor. Everyone has to be keeping an eye on everyone else. And in those, in that kind of a circumstance, I don't think that there really is room for people like John Perry Barlow, who grew up on a cattle ranch, even though he says that in that, you know, in the small town in Wyoming where he grew up, that it really was sort of a privacy less space, you know, because you're in a small town, everybody knows everybody else's business. But it's like, you know, multiply that times, you know, you're, it's a cold war between you and every one of your neighbors, 
you know, and it just this stuff I mean, immediately spirals out into total wackadoodle territory. It, it is. And this is something I was going to say earlier, and it's a great time to, to bring, bring it back up. Um, as a human species, I think that we still have a long way to go. We have all this re- residual resentment and revenge that is what we understand to be human history. Using the example of the Korean War, one among many, I was recently doing a bunch of research on this because I'm trying to understand what exactly are the what are what's the bigger picture what are the bigger picture stakes for North Korea here? Well, Korea was split into North and South Korea in part because the Korean War led to the US supporting South Korea as a democracy and Russia and communism as an ideology supporting North Korea as a communist state. And it's not resolved. Obviously there's still major issues with the Korean border issue, not just Russia, the United States, it's these fractal. empowered state actors. It is it is fractal. But uh, I, I think technology more than anything is is forcing these hard choices on us in a way that our species can adapt. I mean, I hope that we can adapt. I'm optimistic that we could adapt. But I think as things are, as a society exists today – we literally like cannot handle the technological revolution that's coming, even within the next few years. Uh, what are we going to do? And, man? Well, <laughs> just so happens that we kind of sit on the border of all these subcultures. And I think that one of the other areas that I feel extremely strong about this, that's going to help birth us into this new state of being is lessons from psychedelic healing. Not necessarily just psychedelic drugs, uh, but spiritual healing in a, in a broader sense, um, kind of traditional modality of healing. Uh, and psychedelics, of course, are a fast and easy way to access those states of mind. You know, different researchers, organizations like MAPS are helping create a more therapeutic, scientific structure around how to distribute those in a positive way. Anyway, I digress. I think the paradoxes of life living society are only going to increase at an exponential rate and it's going to terrify people. It's going to cause mass chaos and all these different ways because we have these centuries old resentments that have not been resolved. That technology is only going to make further uh, asymmetrical Israel and Palestine. Great example. Um, I mean, the history of all borders there's losers and those those people are upset the you know the the kurdish people in the middle east are pissed they don't have their own state and there's all this stuff that's been happening you know there's this five front civil war that's been happening in syria in part because there's displaced people like the kurdish people who have a right to be upset about everything that's happened to them so anyway i do think that uh, both psychedelics and the ancient modalities of healing, including kind of bridging into these different states of consciousness and ways of, of, of seeing the world and understanding things are going to be the most critical tool that we use to move forward because humanity is probably going to have to make hard choices and we're not we're not as evolved as we could be with the technology that we have. The technology has evolved asymmetrically and now we're making these awful choices as individuals and subcultures and subgroups at the expense of in some cases, literally all other subgroups on the planet because this in-group has the answer and this in-group's answer is complete and total annihilation of all other out-groups. You know, as it reminds me, uh, Elon Musk, his recent – and Stephen Hawking recently called for a hard fork 
of the human blockchain. You know, like we got a, there's going to be human classic and then uh human Mars edition. And then, you know, we'll, we won't vote with our dollar. We'll vote with our planet. I don't know. I'm being, I'm being a little silly, but it is, it is starting to look like we're approaching that branching moment and it would just be best if we could find a way to maximize the number of people who get to choose which fork they take. Like that seems to be the thing. It's like, we can't stop there being a moment where you've got like cyborgs versus hipster gardeners or whatever the hell it is, you know, hippie, that- hippie pro transhuman cyborg humans like clashing with permaculture off the grid hippies who don't want to eat genetically or you know gmo food yeah but gmo versus you interface, gmo you have to literally interface with a bioengineered human you know i mean that's that's a real dichotomy that may my, be on the table yeah my friend recently hit on this vegan and when he tried to kiss her she stopped and thought about it and said she can't do it because he's not a vegan and therefore kissing him is not vegan. So self like, self-selecting genetic modification. Yeah, that's your that's your speciation event right there. That's the, you know, will they mate under laboratory conditions? No. You know, you don't want you don't want uh patented genetic material in your kids. Well, that sexy s- startup CEO is off limits. So I, I I don't know. I, we're 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 just like flying off the handle here, and we're pretty much close. We're, we're we've we've had a nice run on this, and I don't want to keep you from your dinner, but I do want to give you the opportunity to tie a bow on this somehow, to like cast a message or a question into the horizon of however long we can keep these recordings in one piece on their like crystal five D chip or whatever the hell, and you know just. I want to thank you for being on the show. This is way overdue. We've talked about having you on since the beginning. And I, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, what I'm happy else, to be here. It's been a great conversation. Oh, you have a newsletter. Um, yeah, I started a newsletter. Uh, you can sign up. You should be able to sign up on my website. I haven't added that functionality, but by the time this is released, you can sign up for my newsletter on my website. But so first and foremost, I want to do kind of elevator pitch and wrap up of kind of our conversation and what I think is important. And then I'll, I'll get into the contact details. But, um, in short, the, the simultaneously most exciting and scariest thing about being a human today, in my opinion, is the fact that there is so little room to be an observer. Everybody in every sense is increasingly a participant in shaping the future of humanity and the decisions that we make, whether or not they seem small to us, have huge implications and particularly around our worldview and the tribes that we associate with and the relationship that we have with technology and other tribes that we don't associate with. All of these are the most important thing that any living human being can can think about and make decisions based off of. And the future that's coming is going to be impacted by everybody. Maybe not everybody is an artificial intelligence engineer. So in the sense, you know, everybody isn't necessarily building the future, but everybody's going to react to the future. Everybody's going to engage with the future in some sense. And if we could think 
more about what's important to us as well as where those lines could be a little fuzzy, where we have to question what we've always known because maybe things are not quite in alignment with the worldview that we grew up with. Like we as humans have reached this point where we are all active participants and we're making an impact on the future of our species on and off planet, other species outside of our own, um, potentially even this collective dream space of this artificial general intelligence that's far outlasting past human longevity. I mean, we have to act now, you know, those decisions, those conversations, those thoughts, they're all happening today. And the more that we can think about it and ground out around it and really project out and forecast what's life going to be like for us in the next five, 10, 15 years for our children, for our children's children, for the artificial intelligence children of our children. Um, anyway, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the bigger picture view that I have right now. And as far as history goes, you know, just because you like something today doesn't mean people in the future are going to know that it existed unless you make an effort yourself to make it known to future generations. And, you know, the counterculture is the best example. I think that psychedelic history has, especially the 60s, shaped human culture. But so much of that, the factors that shape that culture are passing away in, in, into oblivion because they're not being properly preserved. Um, Owsley Stanley's uh, tape collection has only recently been partially funded for digitized, slowly getting released. Um, that's a whole nother tangent of its own. But so long as we preserve the things important to us, then there's a chance that the beliefs and worldviews that have shaped our lives can help shape future generations' lives. That's why I think it's worth doing and important. So that's my that's my bow for the end of this. <laughs> so I want to, uh, as far as contact information goes, please add me as a friend on Facebook. I, uh, Andrew J. O'Keefe, the second is how you find me. I'm also on Twitter, Andrew J. O'Keefe, Instagram, Andrew J. O'Keefe. Basically my handle on all social media is Andrew J. O'Keefe. Um, the spelling will likely be wherever this is distributed. Yeah. It's, and, it's, uh, um, O K E E F F E. Nope, you spelled it wrong. No, O K E E F E. Oh, the, just the one just, F. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm uh, I'm throwing out my handles right now, so I'll just say Andrew J O'Keefe, A N D R E W J O K E E F E. That's how you can find me across all social platforms. Um, and as far as the kind of next projects I'm working on and the type of people I want to talk to, I'm building a media company at the moment. Um, more information will be available soon. I'm also doing independent media projects anywhere from archival media management of physical assets to digital assets, um, as well as video projects just like marketing videos, um, archival oral histories, uh, promotional videos, archiving events, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I guess that's about it. Um, I could keep talking about different things I'm working on, but I, uh, I, I have a tendency to not like selling myself and I, and I think I've gone a little bit over the deep end already. So, <laughs> well, dude, it's been real. I'm sure that the artificial version of you that comes online one day to make sense of all the crap you left behind will appreciate this conversation as a necessary nutrient in the construction of its total simulacrum. So, <laughs> dude, it's well, let's get you back on the show at some point. 
Yeah, no, yeah. we we, can, we should have another uh, conversation about psychedelic history, counterculture, and stuff. But in, as far as topics go, I uh, one of the many experiments I'm doing right now is that I'm I'm testing being glued to the news cycle. I am more attached to the news cycle across different perspectives uh, than I have ever been, and uh, I am often very deep in if it's a headline story and you hear about it, chances are I've been dissecting it in many layers. So if there's any particular topic or story that hits and you want to give me a call, I'm, I'm available because I, I, uh, I need you to explain Kofefe. You want me to explain Kofefe? No, I, can, I, no. I could explain it briefly, but I, it's, what does it I, mean? It means that we're increasingly moving into meaninglessness in every imaginable sense. Like okay. we're, yeah, we've, we've, re we've completely reached the, we're far beyond the singularity as described by Terrence McKenna. Oh, definitely. And, you know, on that note, we didn't even really get to the the main, the sort of issue of when information becomes so cheap, then noise becomes weirdly valuable. The absurd, the insane takes on new new depth and value. And Look at Dada, the Dada surrealist art movement. I mean, yeah. that is an example of what happens when things are so rigid and structured. You have to throw it all out. Um, I, I, I think that the future of AI generated everything and AI remixes is, is uh, probably going to be more fun than it sounds. <laughs> right on, dude. It's been a blast. Um, appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, man. Yeah, we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support this show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.